0: Here we go. We're in Galatians chapter 2. We're going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 14. You can read along on the screen with her.
1: Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality those i say who seemed influential added nothing to me on the contrary when they saw that i had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised just as peter who had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised for he who worked through peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also to be pillars perceived the grace that god the grace that was given to me they gave the right hand of fellowship to barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. Amen. Thank you, Becca. All right. Let's ask God to bless it, Father. We come to receive from Your Word, and I pray that You'd add Your blessing to it as it's proclaimed. Help us to be good soil for the Word of the Gospel, and I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. A few things are going on. This is uh, this is week four in uh, the study of Galatians, and there's always. Um, One thing that I've noticed about living in the South and being around so many people that have been exposed, at least to the church or to what is called the church, is that there are numerous stories of being wounded by the church. If you just ask someone their story, especially people who are outside of the four walls of these kinds of gatherings, people have so many stories of how they experience disappointment with the people of God. One of the reasons I believe that's true is because we hope so many good things for God and his people. We long to be in fellowship with God's people. We long for it to be this respite, this refuge of grace and the gospel. And just as there are unjust people, when a judge is unjust, it feels that much more devastating, right? And in the church, when we hope really good things for it to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ and the gospel, when we experience the opposite of that, it can be devastating. When the gospel community, when the community around the gospel doesn't reflect the message of the gospel, it can be so disappointing. Today, there's going to be both sides of this in this text. First, what it looks like to be in fellowship within the gospel and how to be disappointed with the marks of just toxic culture that doesn't reflect the message of Jesus. So here in week four, I just want to recap what's happened thus far. Paul planted these churches. He preaches the gospel to them. And then these other people come in and and they basically misled the people of God to believe that they had unnecessary burdens added to belief and faith and repentance of circumcision, of following Jewish customs. And these things that were in addition to the gospel had misled God's people. And now he's correcting them, saying, no, 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 this is not as it should be. And specifically in this passage, last week, he talks about going and visiting Uh, Peter and the other apostles in Jerusalem three years after he's converted. Now it's 14 years after he's converted and he's going back to the apostles and saying, okay, let me present to you what I've been preaching for you to evaluate it. And he's going to demonstrate through this text how they extended the right hand of fellowship to him, and then how he corrects them in the future. So we're going to see the marks of what gospel fellowship and gospel culture looks like first, and then he's going to to show you what it doesn't look like in the last part when he corrects Paul. I mean, yes, Peter, sorry. So Paul's second visit, let's just get into the passage first uh, in verse one. He goes back after 14 years have passed, most likely since his conversion. So add on another 11 years from last week, he shows back up. Call, he goes back to them to connect with them. And he brings these two friends with him, specifically Barnabas and Titus, who's a Gentile, which is going to be important for a couple reasons in the future. So he goes back and he says, this isn't because they invited him. Remember, he's not looking to them for approval, though he's going to be evaluated by them in the future. So he says, I'm going back for two reasons. First, because of a revelation. It's not an invitation to join them or some inspection that they had initiated. He goes of God's prompting to him, and he says, I'm going back for this reason. God revealed it to me that I was to go. And then the second reason you find in verse 2, to make sure that he wasn't running in vain. So one of the first marks of a gospel culture is this willingness to be held accountable with other believers, So he goes back to them and he says, in humility, he's confident and resolved that he has the gospel correct. But he goes back in humility to say, hey, are we running in the same direction here? And he goes and lays before the people of influence what he's been preaching. He's confident, resolved, and he brings it before them with this desire for accountability. So he's willing to be evaluated before I move forward, we need moments like that. Every believer needs moments like that where we lay out our lives before others, where we can be seen and known and have other people know what we're going through, or we can know other people's lives and say, okay, let's see if we're running in the right direction. And Paul seeks this because of God's initiative towards him. Other people didn't come and say, hey, we evaluate your message. So who he's going to is also important. He says, look, I didn't just lay it out in front of other people, everyone. He goes to these people of influence. So he had some choice in who he's going to lay out the gospel and be evaluated before. He has great resolve to to, uh, not comply with the people that were adding to the gospel or trying to bring people into slavery. But he brings it before the people of influence. God's worked through these kinds of moments throughout history where The message of truth would be brought into the council of believers and they say, "Okay, what are we running? What direction are we running? Sorry. You see this later in Acts chapter 15, the the Jerusalem council, where they say, "Okay, what are going to be the pillars of the Christian faith? What are we going to say is absolutely essential to the gospel? And so I want to ask you before we move forward, and accountability, whose voice are you inviting? It's, it's important that we know who we're hearing from, that we'd lay our lives before them. And he says, there's something more that they wanted to add to me, and I rejected it, but there was something that they did ask of me that I said, okay, that's right. He says, you've got to take care of the poor, and he says, that's, that's correct. I, I want to eagerly do that. But he didn't want any unnecessary burden added to, added to him. Titus, who's culturally a Greek, who's traveling with him, wasn't required to be circumcised. This is the primary thing. It's not the only thing that they're arguing about, but this is the primary thing that they're drawing lines around the fellowship of God's people saying, look, we can't eat with you unless you abide by these Jewish cultures and customs. And so he seeks out their affirmation and they give it to him. second piece of a gospel culture is that they affirm whenever they see God's work Look at what he says. They saw that I'd been entrusted with the same message. They could see that the message aligned with what they had been preaching. They had the same ministry with a different context. So many times we base uh, our judgment of some ministry... Based on uh, here in the internet age, you know, you can just listen to everything right now. Like you can just see everything that's going on in the world and say, well, that's not good. That's good. This is right. This is wrong. And there should be some parameters of what is the gospel and who's proclaiming it. Where Where that parameter stops is the context, too, that you're preaching it to. So they could see that it's the same message, but it's being delivered to two different groups of people. He's been entrusted with the gospel. The message is the same. Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, the invitation to follow Jesus. And then the second thing that they affirm in this gospel culture is that they're empowered by God himself. Look at verse 8. For he who worked through Peter for his ministry worked also through me. It's very personal and there is a power that is being demonstrated in their lives. It's a person person who's being demonstrated. Jesus Christ himself, the Holy Spirit, was empowering the work of ministry. There was, and then the last thing, the grace that was given to me in verse 9. They could perceive that God had been gracious to me in the same way that he'd been gracious to them. They gave fellowship to us. They extended the right hand of fellowship, and those were the marks of their fellowship. They affirmed these things. There was both the willingness to be accountable to one another. There was an affirmation that they could see you have the same message. There's a similar grace and there's a similar power that's at work in your life. And so I want to ask us about the boundaries of our fellowship. Are we preaching the same gospel? Do we understand what it is that we're talking about when we say the gospel of Jesus Christ? Who Jesus is and what he's inviting us to participate in, in his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. Second question that I have for us is, are we empowered by the same Holy Spirit? Do we see his power at work in the lives around us? And are we able to say, yes, and amen, I see him working in you. Look, we desperately need that kind of fellowship with one another that it describes in Romans chapter 12, that we would outdo one another in showing honor. And we're not honoring Each other, we're honoring the work of Christ being demonstrated through one another. We see it and we celebrate it and we affirm it saying yes and amen. I see God's grace coming through your life to the people around you. Are we experiencing that same kind of grace that we're proclaiming, receiving, and giving? Now, there's some limits to how we can do this kind of culture if we don't live in close enough proximity to one another. Where we don't lay out our lives and say, hey, am I running in the same direction as the gospel? Part of a gospel culture is that we can be in proximity with one another and be known and know one another close enough that people can say, I see this in your life and I affirm this. We desperately need that kind of affirmation within the body of Christ. We need that kind of gospel affirmation we say we see the message, we see the grace, and we extend fellowship. Now, we need regular space for this to happen. That means that you have to create space for relationships in your life. And there's a limited number of hours in every week and every day, and you have to make space for this to happen, for others to both witness and behold and affirm how the gospel is working in your life. That means that you have to be in proximity for those things to be witnessed. You have to be in proximity for those things to be evaluated in our lives. And one of the ways that we seek to do that is through small groups, Here at our church. And this isn't just a plug for small groups. I really believe that that we want this for you, not from you. This isn't something we're asking people to do so that we can check off some box. We believe that the gospel gets demonstrated and displayed to one another and through each other when we live in this kind of close knit community. Um, And then he goes on to say the gospel can be demonstrated specifically through our care for the poor. So one of the marks of a gospel is you're like, you can't just let this one slide, okay? We're not going to add anything to you, but we want you to be sure that you take care of the poor. Remember, that means that the gospel would have implications for how they treated the most vulnerable, marginalized population. And Paul agrees. He's saying, look, we were happy to do that. We wanted that to be a demonstration of the gospel. And even though we agreed with them on this, there were other people who came in and tried to bring them into slavery. So you have all of these marks of culture, and then one of the last things that I would say is a mark of gospel culture is this incredible resolve to stand firm on the boundary lines of what we're proclaiming. There's other people who come in and say, look, we need these others to adhere to our cultural expectations. He, wanted, he, he describes it as slavery. Some people observe Jewish cultural rules of eating, drinking, who they could associate with. Jewish holidays, which some of these things are not bad. Look, if you want to eat kosher, no problem. You want to do that, that's great. If you want to observe these holidays, that's great. But where it got into conflict was they, uh, they made uh, distinctions and they withdrew their fellowship from people based on these rules. And the gospel was making culture where everyone was welcomed because of what Christ had done, not because of what they could do. And so the gospel naturally leads to this fruits of belief. But if you get the cart before the horse, the cart of sin, it's not going anywhere. If you get this sign of the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision, before, if you see that as a sign of God's grace, then great. But if you get that before the horse, it's going to go awry. So they didn't require this to everyone who believed. Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, kids, you can ask your mom on the way home. Um, Basically, they would require this of everyone that was a Jew, and they were beginning to require this of Gentiles who had come to faith. And he felt that he had this role in preserving the gospel for those future generations who would come to belief, so that they would have no unnecessary burden beyond belief and faith and following Jesus. He was so convinced that his reaction to their attempt to enslave him would have impact for future generations. He stood his ground. He didn't yield for a moment. I just want to point that out because the impact of our decisions around how we live out this gospel They have implications for future generations. They have implications for our kids and for people beyond us. If we add anything to what Christ has required, if we have any unnecessary burden to what it means to follow Jesus Christ, there's implications to that. And you're going to see that in the flip side of this. When he corrects Peter, he's saying, look, other people joined his hypocrisy because he chose to withdraw his fellowship from people. He didn't for a moment yield in submission, even for a moment. Why? So that the truth of the gospel may be preserved for those of you who would come to believe in the future. Such a strong commitment to the gospel that it would, and any threat of corruption for future generations meant he was standing firm. Even with the influence of others, for those that would distract and draw him away, One of the major differences between our God and the rest of us, fallen mankind, is that we love to make distinctions. We love to figure out what categories that we're in that other people are not in. You ever notice this? Like as soon as you start talking to someone, you're trying to figure out what circle that you're in that they're not in. Like the evaluation of your mind is running through this list of what do we have in common? And maybe there's more lists of things you do not have in common. There's so many ways that that doesn't reflect God's nature, that he would come by his grace and welcome us with just this gracious welcome. And then in verse 6, he says, look, what these people are, the people of influence, it makes no difference to me. Why? Because God himself shows no partiality. He doesn't welcome us when we clean up our act. He welcomes us by his grace and for his glory, and it begins to shape who we are becoming as a group of people. This is part of what it means to be a culture that's marked by what God's done for us and not what we're doing in the world. We begin to look at other people differently because he doesn't see them with partiality and distinction. He sees them as who He is towards them. We can reflect that kind of glory towards the people around us. So we look at this passage and the theological thing he's frustrated with has begun to leave out uh, the culture. It's begun to influence the culture of the church. And then he moves towards correction. Now, before he moves to Paul's, his correction of Peter, I want to point out in verse 14, he says, he says this. The conclusion is this. When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? The conclusion that Paul has here, I want, I want to get there before I kind of explain why his conclusion was this. It was that they're not living in step with the gospel. In other words, there's a way in which the gospel doesn't just uh, proclaim this announcement of God's grace. It influences how we behave towards one another. It changes the dynamic of how we understand who we are, that we're rescued by God. It makes us grateful and humble. It changes the dynamic of how we evaluate other people around us. We begin to see them through this lens of God's grace. the way that they were behaving was out of step with it. It's, it's almost as if the gospel had this drum and it was beating. And the people in this church, Peter specifically, becomes the antithesis of this rhythm of God's grace. And he's saying, look, we do not want to deny with our behavior what we've proclaimed with our message. It's really important that our behavior line up with the truth of what we're saying about God and his work and who we are in light of that work. He's saying basically this group of people, the church, should be like a model home of heaven where people can come in. They can experience what it's like to see God's grace and glory by walking around and interacting with us as believers. And their behavior was so out of step with the message that he's like, look, I'm calling him out. I corrected him in front of everybody. We we don't love this kind of correction, but this is also a mark of gospel culture that if there's anything that goes against the message of truth that we say, wait, wait, wait a second. That's not like God. It's not like him. Then so he begins to describe what happened in his correction. And as he corrects him in verse 12, or on through the rest of this chapter, he's saying these are the things that are toxic to a gospel culture. It's a bad representation. And it led to correction. So what's toxic? What needs correction? And there's three things that I see here. I'm sure there's other things that you could observe. The first one is the fear of man if we're more afraid of what other people think about us than what God has declared about us, then it will corrupt this culture of grace. Look at verse 12. Before, he had eaten with Gentiles, but then this circumcision party, this Judaizers, they come in and they make him a little nervous. They start telling him that what he's doing, that's not acceptable. It's not okay. And what does he do? He withdraws his presence. Instead of drawing near to the people that were culturally different than him, he withdraws his presence from them. The fear of man is like trading the most precious affirmation and affection of God for what what pales in comparison. The applause of man just pales. So before he's eating with Gentiles, now he's showing partiality. It really is devastating, isn't it? that he would withdraw his fellowship from them. Listen, the gospel is supposed to free us from this rat race of trying to please and appease others, and it invites us to follow Christ, to follow him, to see him and his opinion as above all other opinions, to see him as the Lord of all. If you're currently more concerned about appearances or opinions rather than God himself, It will be toxic to the message of the gospel being played out in your life. It will be. It will destroy you. The fear of man is like poison to the culture of grace because only God can sustain the weight of your need for affirmation. He's the only one that can. Now, you can get that distributed through God's people, like I said, in the culture of grace. You can see God's people saying, I see God's work. I see his message. I see his power in your life. But if you're dependent on other people to give that to you, it will never be enough. There is no human being that can give you enough affirmation and affection that will appease your soul's need for God. And so he goes and he withdraws his fellowship because he's scared of the circumcision party. And then he sees the second thing. He shows partiality. This is just a poison to the gospel culture that God wants to create in the church. The distinctions that absolutely exist, they exist within the church. Look, if you look around you, one of the most beautiful things is that you are not like anybody else in this room. Now, you might be more like them than other people around the globe. But you are less like God than you are like them. Here's my point. He made a bigger stretch to redeem you than you could make to welcome those around you. Okay? The, the, the greatest difference in this room is so small compared to what God has done to reconcile you to himself. And so he wants to demonstrate that great reconciliation by our distinctions being unified through Christ. That we'd look around us and say, I love the differences that are existing in the body of Christ. One of the most beautiful things about the gospel is the way that we can experience unity. Though we have national differences, cultural differences, ethnic distinctions. In Galatians, what we're going to see in chapter 3, it says this, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male, no female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the more we make of the distinctions, the less we see God's work in the glory of His unity of us. It's not that we can't see the distinctions. You can look around you and say, I love that we're a different skin color, a different ethnicity, a different background, different cultures. One of the most beautiful things about the church is that those things exist together, that you're so different from wherever the other people around you grew up. When we make more of our distinctions than God's glory, it diminishes his work through the gospel. John Piper says it this way, his true greatness, that's God, will be manifest in the breadth of diversity of those who perceive and cherish his beauty. His excellence will be shown to the higher and deeper than the parochial differences that make us happy most of the time. His appeal will be the deepest, highest, largest capacities of the human soul, those the diversity of the source of admiration will testify to his incomparable glory. There's lots of distinctions that we prefer most of the time, right? Lots of things, maybe the music you listen to demonstrates where you're coming from, right? Maybe the way that you dress demonstrates whatever culture that you came from, the color of your skin, all of those things pale in comparison to the one who draws our affections to him. So let us be cautious when there's some secondary message or distinction or alliance that we value higher than the unity that we receive through Jesus Christ. Paul's reminding them in this passage that God is not impressed with influence or lack of influence. He's not impressed with external things. God is more concerned with your heart. Peter shows partiality by withholding fellowship to the Gentile Christians, and that's why Paul's calling him out. Partiality is a toxin, it's a poison to gospel culture. There's things, and there are people who you are naturally going to enjoy more than others, okay? Everybody said amen. <laughs> There's going to be people that you enjoy more than others, and that is okay. But if you value those distinctions more than you value the unity that God gives us through Jesus Christ, it will corrupt the culture that the gospel wants to create. And it leaves this last thing that's just a poison, and it's hypocrisy. The worst part of Peter withdrawing from the table, eating with people that were culturally different from him, is that it was so hypocritical. He knew better. Some people, they might not know any better. They don't know any better. They don't, they, maybe they do think that their ethnicity is better than some other ethnicity. And you look at it and say, maybe that's ignorance. But with Peter, he knew better. It was hypocritical. In Acts chapter 10, it tells the story of how this came about. Okay, hey, let me give you a background before I put it on the screen. Okay, Peter gets this vision, okay? He's praying And this sheet comes down out of heaven and there's all these unclean things. Three times it comes down and God says, take and eat. And that's why we can all enjoy pork barbecue for lunch today, okay? (laughs) Everybody can enjoy the slow smoke of pork. Up until that point, Peter would not have associated with a meal like that. He would not have associated with people who eat those things. He wouldn't have even sat in the same house with those people. And he gets this message to take kill and eat and he's like wait i can't do that lord but god tells him three times he's like okay and right after that he's like there's three guys coming to your door they're going to tell you to go take take the gospel to this guy named cornelius okay he's a gentile i know you've never visited with gentiles before i know you've avoided them your entire life but you need to go with them so he goes with them he takes the message and he's like, what's going on? How did you have this vision that you should come visit me and bring me back to your house? And they explain it. Look, we got this vision that you're supposed to come and bring you back to our house. And so he's like, well, okay, now I guess I know. Acts chapter 10, verse 28. He says, he looks at them and he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit with anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. In other words, God showed him something that he's denying in this chapter that he's being confronted in. He had seen it for himself. Then he goes on to listen to their story, and he's like, "Okay, I guess I'm supposed to preach the gospel here." So he begins preaching the gospel. He's not expecting much because God has shown specific, extraordinary favor to the Jews, and expecting that Jesus has an extraordinary grace just to the Jews. And as he begins to declare what Jesus has done, Peter opens his mouth, it's going to be on the screen. He says, truly, I understand now that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Verse 36, he goes on to say, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. In other words, he's saying, I guess Jesus is in charge of all of y'all. I guess he's Lord over everyone. His horizon got expanded dramatically in this moment until other people came in and said, You can't be eating with them. Look, if you want to reach other Jews for Jesus, you can't go associating with these Gentiles. And while Peter was still saying these things, later this happens in Acts chapter 10, it says, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. (laughs) And they're going, wait, what? How in the world is God showing the same extraordinary, miraculous grace to the people that we will not eat with that we will not go into their houses, it just changes the dynamic of the church from that point forward. And it changes the disappointment of Paul when he hears that Peter had withdrew his fellowship when he became afraid of what people would say about him. Now, most of us think this kind of like external pressure to associate with the right people is contained to middle school and high school, but it is absolutely not. It might be extraordinary in those in those seasons of life where who you sit with and who you eat with matters very very much. But here you see look God is making a new group of people where you don't sit with those that you prefer but you sit with those who he's redeeming and reconciling to himself different nations different ethnicities different cultures, different backgrounds, different things that they thought were okay that you didn't know they were okay and you didn't really like how they did it. All of those preferences fade in comparison to the glory of who God is reconciling to himself. Jesus hated this kind of hypocrisy, you know? This hypocrisy is just toxic and Jesus talked about it in Luke chapter six. It says this, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye and you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. In other words, look, the gospel creates this culture where we first see our need before we think of other people's need for God's grace. We bring our own needs first. Say, I got a lot of problems here, Jesus. Come take this log out of my eye before I go judging and criticizing other people's speck. And if we hold a higher standard for others than we're willing to hold to ourselves in public or in private, that's hypocritical. It's the kind of hypocrisy that he's calling out. He's like, Peter, how could you do this? You don't even require these things of yourself that you're requiring of the Gentiles. So it leaves me with this prayer for us as a people. And this is the application, the conclusion, it's all of it, okay? It's this prayer in our church as it is in heaven. I so long for this group of people, look around you, to be a model home of what heaven is like, diverse in every way, culturally diverse, lots of preferences, lots of distinctions, but they just pale in comparison to our affection for the glory of Jesus Christ. He's so beautiful. He's so good. And his gospel is so great that we're more concerned with that than we are how we prefer people to do it or to not do it or to live. The gospel allows us to let things be about Jesus and not about our own preferences. We allow him to change the things in others that we notice. (laughs) We allow him to give us our our affirmation when we long for others to notice us. (laughs) On earth as it is in heaven, how can we be a model for the world to come in and experience the welcome that's in Christ Jesus, to experience the same affirmation that we would see God's grace and name it, that we'd see his message behold by other people and say we see this it resembles jesus christ the greatest honor that we can bestow on any person ever is to say this you reflect jesus christ you look so much like him the message of your life resembles him your welcome resembles him and it also means that the antithesis of that culture sometimes will have to be corrected and called out When we see things that are not representative of Jesus Christ, we say, this doesn't look like Jesus. This is not in our church as it is in heaven. We correct those things. We can't yield to the fear of man, to any distinction or partiality or to hypocrisy of expecting of others what we do not expect of ourselves. And so the remedy of all of this is just the fear of the Lord and the acceptance of his grace. Both of those things that we would just bring ourselves to him and say, Lord, let it be in our church as it is in heaven. So I want to close our time today reading this this prayer over us from Romans chapter 12. And I would invite you to read it aloud with me as a response to this message. Let's read this and pray it over one another and then we'll close. This is from Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 18. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection.